The case is submitted. We'll hear argument next in number 89-1166, Arthur Groves versus Ring Screwworks. Mr. Gold, you may proceed whenever you're ready. Let's have order in the court and no talking in the courtroom, except from counsel at the lectern. Chief Justice, and may it please uh, the court, uh, this case, like the uh, preceding case, is one in which uh, the International Union UAW is uh, the petitioner, but thereafter the similarities uh, uh, cease rather than arising under uh, Title VII. Uh, this case arises under Section 301 of uh, the Labor Management uh, Relations Act, and as uh, uh, the emptying out of the bar section shows, raises questions uh, of somewhat uh, less emotional uh, 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 proportion. Uh, the parties here entered into a collective bargaining agreement for a three-year uh, term. Uh, the agreement, uh, which stretches some 35 printed pages in uh, the joint uh, appendix. Actually, there are two agreements, but they're parallel. Literally 3,500 pages? 35 pages. Oh, oh. I apologize. <laughs> 35 pages of uh, provisions are enough, 3,500, and our printing bill would have uh, kept us out of this court. Uh, 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 stretches some 35 pages and covers the normal uh, uh, particulars of the, of, uh, the relationship, uh, the working relationship between the employer and his employees. Uh, the agreement contains a uh, grievance procedure which specifies uh, uh, that it is the method for treating disagreements as to the interpretation and application of the agreement. Uh, the grievance procedure provides for four steps of concilia conciliation and uh, uh, discussion. Uh, provides that the parties may agree to arbitration for certain matters, provides that an agreement reached between 
the employer and uh, uh, the union during the uh, grievance procedure is binding and is silent on what uh, the status of the situation is in the event that the parties do not uh, come to an agreement about what the contract means. In addition, uh, this agreement has an express no-strike clause, and the express no-strike clause contains an exception for a strike or a lockout over an unresolved grievance. The one thing that is absolutely plain is that the agreement is totally silent on whether uh, there is an option where uh, uh, no resolution uh, of the matter is reached in the last stage of the grievance procedure, uh, one party or the other uh, may sue under uh, Section 301, which provides for uh, such suits uh, for uh, a breach of the agreement and for enforcement of the agreement as properly uh, construed and uh, uh, entered into. Mr. Gold, if suit is brought, do you consider the grievance by reason of the bringing of the suit uh, to still be an unresolved grievance? I, I regard it as being an unresolved grievance until the court speaks uh, and uh, determines whether the grievance is properly grounded in the contract or whether the employer's action was consistent with the contract and does not constitute a uh, breach of the contract. When does the no-strike clause allow a strike to occur? The no-strike clause allows strike to uh, occur uh, at the completion of the fourth step. Mm -hmm. So uh, it does uh, uh, Where is the no-strike clause in the Look at the line. Page 34. Uh, the no-strike clause uh, which is section 7 on page 34 of the joint appendix, the buff colored book uh, says uh, uh, until all negotiations, there shall be no strikes, uh, etc. Where, uh, where is that on the page, Mr. It Chief? is at the bottom of the page, section 7. The union will not cause or permit its members to strike. Then you have uh, the negatives, and at the end it says, until all negotiations have failed through the grievance procedure set forth herein. Neither will the company engage in any lockout until the same grievance procedure has been carried out. Uh, so as we would see those words, uh, there could be a strike or a lockout at the end of the fourth stage, whether or not there was a, uh, a lawsuit. The purpose of the strike being to force the company to do what the law may permit it to do. What it may have a contractual right to do. They are currently litigating whether, whether the company has a contractual right to do that. Correct. And you're saying there can be a strike to prevent the company from doing what the court will say or is being asked to say it has a contractual right to do. And it works the opposite where, you know. That's right. Where, 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 where there's a lockout. The employer is locking out the union uh, because the union is asserting a contractual right, which a court is being asked to affirm. I, I, I find something uh, 
inappropriate about about uh, well, but uh, to the to the extent that there is anything inappropriate. I mean, your sense of inappropriateness is not in the lawsuit. It is that the parties uh, created both an option uh, to strike and an option to uh, uh, to sue at the same time, rather than a system uh, which guarantees that you will have only one or the other. Now, well, the companies, what if, the com- what if what if, uh, what if the, the suit goes forward and the ruling is against the union? Is a, can can the union strike? Uh, I take it that the uh, the the question there and uh, uh, the answer. Uh, that we would uh, suggest as well is the same as uh, was assumed in Buffalo Forge. Uh, in well, um, you can give a yes or no answer. Yeah. <laughs> we, think yes. stri- we think that a continuation of a strike or lockout after the uh, uh, judicial decision uh, would be enjoinable. And so, in effect, you think the contract says uh, uh, we don't have arbitrators, but we uh, have agreed uh, that the court will stand in the shoes of an arbitrator. That's right. Uh, and uh, well, that isn't what the contract says. Well, the contract says nothing. Yeah. Well, that's what I say. It didn't provide that. Uh, what it it what we say in terms uh, first of all, there was no strike here. Uh, so we're not dealing with the question in this particular case of the interplay between the right to get a judicial determination on the meaning of the contract and whether the contract is more than a collection of words uh, which have no purpose when the push comes uh, uh, to the shove. Uh, uh, and uh, whether a union or an employer can go down both uh, 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 options at the same time. The company's position here is that this silence, the, the creation of this grievance procedure, which ends at a certain point, whether or not there is a resolution of the disagreement, and the exception to the no-strike clause, which permits the option of going on strike, is sufficient to demonstrate that the parties negated judicial enforcement of the contract, whether or not the union strikes. Uh, What is your position as to whether or not a lawsuit and a strike could proceed concurrently? If there's no final judgment in the lawsuit, can you... Can the uh, union then pursue both avenues simultaneously? Let let me uh, treat with uh, the problem uh, uh, as as we see. Of course, it explains my answer. My answer is that we believe uh, that under an agreement of this kind, they can proceed. Can concurrently, and let me state why. First of all, uh, as we've noted in our brief, the leading lower court case here is a Seventh Circuit case, uh, uh, Associated General uh, uh, Contractors. As that case shows, you can have one party bringing the lawsuit and the other party uh, using economic force, the defendant using economic force. 
uh, as uh, the uh, Seventh Circuit held in that case, because of the Norris LaGuardia Act, you can't enjoin the non-suing party from using economic force. And against that background, while we don't think that it's uh, uh, hard and fast, uh, it seems to us it would be uh, uh, unsymmetrical, disproportionate, and unsound to say that the suing party uh, could not use economic force. But you have not only the contract questions here and the contract interpretation questions here, but you also have the Norris LaGuardia Act questions, which, as the uh, court noted in the Associated General Contractors case, because that case came up twice, first on uh, a status quo injunction uh, pending uh, a determination by the court, and then uh, a second time around. So the question of whether uh, the use of force is a breach of this no-strike clause pending uh, uh, judicial determination, and the question of whether uh, it is enjoinable, uh, even if it is a breach of this no-strike clause, seems to us to be separate from the question of how do you read the agreement? Do you read the agreement of permitting the parties to uh, uh, secure what uh, uh, the Seventh Circuit said was the salutary effects of a judicial determination of the meaning of the contract on the basis of the fact uh, that they permitted this option of economic force? Mr. Gold, is this uh, an unusual form of, uh, of collective bargaining agreement? It is a minority form of collective bargaining agreement, but it is, uh, uh, seems to me to be a variation of your risk question. Uh, uh, mm. I, I can't quantify. Well, I mean, it doesn't number, stick out it's like a sore thumb. It's, a, it's a, a relatively uh -huh. small group right. of contracts, but it is not... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, sui generis, it's not uh, extraordinary. Right. The litigation shows uh, that there are a fair number of such. What is the more stand, what is the more common, how does the more common one read? The more common uh, uh, form of agreement is, or the most common form of agreement, is one that provides for final and binding arbitration, and the court has set out all the rules on what uh, that means. Explicitly uh, eliminates uh, right. judicial. Uh, uh, it, it both eliminates right. the uh, right for self-help and uh, right. judicial determination of the meaning of the agreement. But it doesn't, uh, and we'll get back to us in talking about what the policies are here, the important thing is that it doesn't eliminate the peaceful on the merits determination of what the contract means it provides an arbitral determination of what the contract means in the traditional sense of determining what a group of words that constitute legally enforceable promises mean. Well, is, isn't there also a right of judicial review of the arbitrary? Right. And in addition, it is uh, fairer to say than rather than eliminating judicial enforcement the uh, Steelworkers Trilogy in such cases set a standard of review of judicial enforcement, but the judicial enforcement is the final step 
in the process if either party will not accept what the arbitrator has done. Uh, the arbitrator's award in that sense is not self But the grounds for a court to, to not to, uh, to uh, accept the arbitral award are very, very narrow. narrow. Yes, narrow. well, that, that's what I'm saying. But the process is one of enforcement of contracts in the way that any common law lawyer would understand the concept well, is of this, enforcement. Is this case of it very, is it very significant because uh, I would suppose uh, that if the parties are, are uh, do you think the union would ever have agreed to a provision in this particular contract that economic weapons are the only way to uh, resolve a unsettled agreement? I, I think that the, uh, the greatest reason for doubting the inference that the Court of Appeals drew is the one you just stated. I, I think that there was a great deal of, of concentration here on arbitration and striking, but I think uh, the union certainly presumed that it was not giving away its right to go to court because it is extremely uh, difficult, given the disproportion, uh, to have 300 people lose their sustaining wages. Well, I suppose if you had thought that uh, the union would have uh, said yes if the employer said, and by the way, you can't sue, you probably wouldn't have been here. Well, I, I, I think so. And in one of, one of the important functions this, this court's ruling will uh, have is to give the ground rules against which the parties will negotiate. We Evans' contract in, in that respect is, I guess, somewhat better for the employer's position because at page 53 of the appendix it says, unresolved grievance, except arbitration decision, shall yeah. be handled as a set forth in the no-strike clause. Yeah, and the question there is, uh, why are these two contracts which, which were entered into by the same parties at the same time different? What did that mean, the Court of Appeals points out that this case was litigated on the, pro on the basis that the agreements were substantially the same. The employer has never uh, relied on that as showing uh, a studied determination to resolve the problem, and it does have the phrase unresolved grievances. How you resolve grievances is, as in the final analysis, is as silent, is a question which is as totally unaddressed in the Evans uh, collective bargaining agreement as in uh, uh, the other collective bargaining agreement. Uh, having taken these de detours, let me state what we believe the right uh, rule is. Uh, uh, we believe the right rule is that uh, collective bargaining agreements should not be construed to preclude judicial enforcement unless that is clearly and unmistakably the party's intent. We believe that that is the sound rule of law because of uh, the language policies and purposes of uh, Section 301 which adds a provision making collective bargaining agreements uh, enforceable uh, in court. As uh, this court has explained uh, those purposes and policies, uh, most particularly in Lincoln Mills, which uh, we set out uh, the 
uh, basic uh, uh, holding of at pages 10 and 11 of uh, our brief. Uh, as uh, the court said there, uh, Congress's point uh, was that unions as well as employees should be bound to collective bargaining contracts. There was also a broader concern, a concern with a procedure for making such agreements enforceable in the courts by either party. Uh, Congress, having created this system uh, uh, in order to further industrial peace by making these labor contracts enforceable in the federal courts, creating quite a constitutional ruckus uh, uh, in doing so, as uh, uh, Lincoln Mills uh, uh, indicates, uh, it seems to us that uh, uh, a determination that the parties have contracted out of the usual processes of the law uh, ought to be one that is clear and unmistakable. And we believe, for the reasons we also spell out in the brief, that Section 203D, which recognizes uh, a preference for final adjustment by a method agreed upon by the parties, uh, does not cut back on Section 301 at all. That uh, looking at the totality of Title II of, uh, the, of uh, the Taft-Hartley Act, the obvious purpose uh, is to further peaceful methods of settlement. The whole point of both Section 301 and 203D and Title II more generally was to create a system in which there are periods of discord uh, when the parties negotiate agreements and to encourage and further systems for the peaceful resolution of contract disputes after the negotiation is concluded. Congress did not prohibit the parties from saying that they were going to have a system in which the contract is not enforceable in any sense that one would understand a contract being enforceable, namely uh, uh, a contract being a set of promises which attempts to capture the future and where disagreements on meaning are settled by referring back to the meeting of the minds as reflected in the agreement uh, uh, at the time it was entered into. And if, and if there's no meeting of the minds as some general federal common law of the workplace? To the extent that the parties provide for our Arbitration. I, I, well, no, no, I, I, do you mean no. on the met, as to what? At the judicial review stage. But it, are you asking about the substance or about this question of whether the contract is enforceable? Uh, I'm sorry, just. What, what is the substantive law to which the Congress, to which the court looks in these cases where uh, the, where the contract isn't clear? I mean, you're not just asking us in this case uh, to determine. Uh, that the grievance procedure w was, was proper, but I take it whether or not there was just cause for the termination. Yes. Uh, where the parties don't provide for arbitration, it is well settled that uh, the court uh, interprets uh, uh, the contract, and Lincoln Mills says that uh, uh, the courts must fashion 
the law they apply, the contract law they apply, from the policy of our national labor laws. Uh, again, we set out the quote at page 9. Well, of course, those, that was in the context of arbitration. But uh, uh, it, it is... And in, in other suits, back it has been with the, uh, the good faith duty of representation. We've developed no real federal common law of uh, just, just, dis- just cause for discharge. No, there, there would not be uh, a federal common law in that regard. Certainly the court would look to the evolving arbitral law on what just cause means, what that provision means. But uh, it is perfectly well settled in the Sinclair and other cases that the parties don't have to provide for arbitration, that 301 makes these contracts enforceable, and that the contract law, which after all is a relatively passive law, the basic rule is that you apply uh, uh, the contract as the parties intended it. Uh, All we're saying here is that on the critical question of enforceability and justiciability, uh, there ought to be a presumption that 301 means what it says and that the contract is enforceable. Uh, in the traditional sense, and that uh, only if the parties expressly negate that, in essence, contract out of the system uh, which Congress has put in place and shown a preference for, uh, should the determination be made that uh, no lawsuit can be brought. Your your position, Mr. Gold, would certainly bring a lot more cases into uh, labor contract cases into federal court. It would bring cases of this kind into federal court, but I I think it is inherent that uh, these cases would be in the federal courts. After all, uh, unless the court says that no matter what the true intent was, if you don't expressly provide for judicial enforcement where there's no arbitration, then you're going to decide on a case-by-case basis what this clause means or what that clause means. The the fact of the matter is that uh, there will be cases of this kind in federal court and that... And in the state court. And in the state court. 301 cases can go in the state court. Yeah, and that Congress made the determination. In other words, It was a long time ago, and a lot of things have changed, but it was a fighting issue in 1947 as to whether these contracts ought to be judicially enforceable or whether there ought to be a system where there were simply guidelines which the parties, in essence, could tear up any time they wished to do so if they felt strongly enough. And let me add in that regard that in no sense does a strike system constitute a method of enforcing a contract. It is a method of creating a new contract. Parties can do that, as I say, but I don't see how it can be fitted into Congress's determination to have contracts enforceable through the usual processes of the law. Mr. Gold, I suppose your case, or the case, really comes down to a battle of presumptions, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you, you take the position that uh, uh, there is access to judicial relief unless the contract expressly provides otherwise. Your opponents say just the reverse, 
that uh, there's no access to judicial relief unless the contract says there is. Right, and we believe... Here we are. Yes, and we believe that uh, the lessons of 301 uh, in particular is that our presumption is the one grounded in uh, federal law. I'd like well, to... Well, uh, the... Uh, <laughs> I, su I suppose if there weren't a if there weren't a no strike clause and no provision for either grievances or arbitration, it would be perfectly clear that you sue in 301. Absolutely. Not because of some presumption, but because that's what the law says. Well, but the law continues and, and to, the, to well, say that. Well, of course it in does. The, and you I, think you think this case is just like the one I just posed? Absolutely. Thank you, Mr. Gold. Mr. Page, we'll hear now from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the issue presented in this case is whether, once there is in existence a collective bargaining agreement and a dispute resolution process within that agreement, and that a grievance is filed and those grievances run the route of the dispute resolution process in the agreement, should the Court presume that the, the end result is final or not final? I agree it is a battle of presumptions. With respect to the, the number of uh, contracts in which this language uh, might be found, I, I, I can say to the Court that the Bureau of National Affairs contains a database of approximately 400, I should say approximately 400 collective bargaining agreements. 36% of those agreements call for resolution by some method other than arbitration. What, what, what is the reason that an employer or a union would prefer this kind of a contract to a contract for binding arbitration? I would, I would cite to the Court the only comprehensive article on the issue, that of Professor Feller, who was the uh, uh, successful counsel who argued before this Court, the Trilogy and the VACA case, who was general counsel uh, to the uh, United Steelworkers. And he said that the reason the parties... Well, he didn't quite prevail in VACA. <laughs> to some extent. I, uh, yeah. but, but the reason the parties would do this is because they consider this issue so important that they do not want third-party intervention. It, it, they treat it on the same level as they do the formation of the contract in the first place, that, that uh, it's so important to them that they want to decide it themselves. Now, the rule I would suggest that... Excuse me. Uh, that that uh, brings into question, uh, if, if everything in the contract is not enforceable in court and all you've agreed to is to go to arbitration, if you agree to go to arbitration, and if you don't agree to arbitration, either side is free not to comply with the contract, the union to strike, and the employer to lock out. How can you call this a contract? Your it seems to me it's, a, it's, it's an illusory contract if, 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 it, is, if, if, if it is utterly non-binding in the court. Now, now, maybe under 301, illusory contracts are okay, but, but I'm reluctant to interpret the provision to... Uh, <laughs> you know, to, to, to envision something that is unknown at the common law. You're telling me this agreement says nothing except we agree that if one party wants to go to arbitration, we'll go to arbitration, but if the other one doesn't want to, we've agreed to nothing. That's what the, that's what the agreement says. Your Honor, I submit that the agreement does call, call for a resolution of the grievance, and, 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 that that, and that should be binding. And it calls for it in this manner. There's a four-step conciliation process, if you will, will be... Uh, but where the parties meet and discuss it. If it isn't resolved at that juncture, the union has, a, has an option to present to its membership the option to strike vote, which was presented in this case. Now, if the union... We've agreed then to try to agree. 
That's right. But if we can't agree, we've agreed to nothing. No, Your Honor, I don't. I think that's a classic illusory contract. Your Honor, I don't uh, concur with the Court that we agree to nothing, because if the union chooses to strike in support of the grievance, that pressures both parties to come back to the negotiating table and resolve it. And that, and, and that the fact that they choose that kind of method for compelling negotiation and, indeed, compelling resolution indicates the importance with which uh, they attach to, resolu to resolution of the, of, of the grievance in the first place. So I submit that the process, the grievance process, is not just the first four uh, conferences, if you will. It includes the strike lockout. Because what happens is, if it isn't resolved in the first four steps and it's thrown over into that article of the contract, what occurs then is that pressures both parties to sit down and resolve the grievance. Because indeed, the union doesn't want to stay, uh, uh, stay on strike over, over agreements, and indeed, the employer doesn't want to stay uh, inoperable because of it. So I think that that is a that that strike lockout step is a continuation of the grievance process which compels a resolution. And what happened in this case was that when the union membership declined to go on strike in support of that grievance, that that ended consideration of the grievance and in effect uh, constituted a denial which was, which was arrived at at the prior step. So I submit, Your Honor, that this, this process does compel yes, They made that decision resolution. assuming they had the right to sue. Isn't that, isn't that right? Because they did go ahead and sue. So you don't know if they've been told they can't sue. Maybe they would have kept. A they would have, have struck. Well, Your Honor, again, we, we come back to, to, the, to the presumption that's correct. Uh, they, they might have struck, and that, that of course, is, it depends on, on what took place at that, at that union hall meeting in terms of what they're told. But I should say, say to the court that it's never been contended in this lawsuit by the petitioners that there was any kind of indication, either expressly or impliedly, by the employer of a willingness or an acquiescence that that that. Uh, any issue should be resolved pursuant to a 301 lawsuit. Well, but ordinarily when an employer enters into a, a, an agreement that's set forth, you know, 35 pages and signed as a contract, don't both parties intend, uh, unless they say otherwise, there's going to be some sort of right of judicial enforcement? There is, Your Honor, and, and I think the, the principle of Lincoln Mills here is very important, and I think the critical starting point of the case. And Lincoln Mills, the court said, that the substantive, substantive law of 301 was to be fashioned by the federal courts consistent with the policy of our national labor laws. And, uh, and which brings in the question, what is the policy of our national labor laws? And I think this court, through a number of opinions, has, has ratified that the policy is expressed in Section 203D, which, which states that final adjustment by a method chosen by the parties is declared to be the desirable method by which uh, grievances are settled with respect to the interpretation and, collective and, uh, and application of the collective bargaining agreement. So if, if the substantive law is to be developed and consistent with the policy, and the policy is final adjustment by a method chosen by the parties, and clearly that was the, the, the legislative history, this Court's interpretation, the statutory language itself, all speaks to the fact that that is the policy. Final adjustment by a method agreed to by the parties. So is your answer that when an employer and a union enter into a contract, they don't intend that it shall be, or that it sh they sh anyone shall have a right of judicial enforcement? Your Honor. You, you can answer that yes or no, and then explain your answer. There is a right of judicial enforcement, Your Honor. But I should, but I should indicate that, that what this Court has done, and I'll analogize that 
to, a, uh, to a, uh, use an analogy here, what this court has done has, is said the parties agree upon the rules. Indeed, the, the concept in, of industrial self-government discussed in the trilogy. The parties will agree on the rules of the game. They are best situated. They are the ones who are present in, in the plain environment. They determine the rules, and what the court has done consistently with respect to 301 is step back and say, we will umpire. Well, you, you, you can say that about lots of contracts, that it's just the contracting parties agreeing on the rules of the game, whether it's a construction contract or the, the way a particular sports league shall be run and that sort of thing. But when there is an agreement, ordinarily people assume that if, if you're not able to solve it uh, by settle the dispute, one party can go to court. Yes, and I think the 301 law is, Your Honor, that if there is no grievance process that the parties can go in court to enforce, but when there is a grievance process, which we contend here is the first four steps plus the, the then going into the strike, out, strike lockout to compel the resolution, that when there is a process, the courts give finality to that process and sit as long as the rules to what the grievance procedure is adhered to. The only time this court has, has, has used 301 authority as it's developed the substantive law consistent with the policy of final adjustment by the parties. The only time this court has, has exerted its authority, or the federal courts have exerted their authority to enforce contracts, is to make the parties play the game pursuant to the rules by which they said they would play it in the agreement. And but Mr. Page, are you in effect arguing, I just want to be sure I understand, that the no-strike clause really shouldn't have been put where it is, but it should have been step five of the agreements procedure? Yes, sir, I think and it we, really we'll is. We'll do one, two, three, four, and five. We don't agree. We'll either go on strike or lock you out. Yes, sir. And, and as, because uh, you certainly admit that if you had put in a provision that said at the end of the procedure, the parties can either resort to economic weapons or to litigation, there'd be nothing unlawful about such an agreement. That's right. Yeah. That's right. But, but, but you're saying, in effect, the strike is part of the grievance procedure. Yes, sir. I think that's indicated uh, particularly strongly in the Evans case, where it indicates in the grievance procedure that unresolved grievances shall uh, be resolved pursuant to Article 16, I think, Paragraph 7. And so the, the grievance procedure specifically continues on over into that process. It does the same thing in the Groves contract. It just doesn't do it quite as explicitly. It doesn't do it explicitly at all. <laughs> no, but, 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 if, but Article 16 in the, in the Groves contract, again, says that, that, that the grievance procedure will, will be uh, fulfilled by both parties before the strike lockout method uh, comes into play. Mr. Payne, here, here the, the issue has been um, uh, raised by the union's filing suit. But I assume your position would be the same if the issue were raised not by the union's filing suit, but by the union's striking. That is to say, you would take the position that if you have a contract which provides for, for wages of uh, uh, $25 an hour, and the union says, we think that we want $30 an hour, you would then go through the, even though it says 25, they say, well, 25 means 30. You would go through the grievance procedure when you fail to agree, you say the union would be free to strike, and you would not be able to enjoin that strike uh, on the basis that it was in violation of the contract. That's correct. So the contract is really worthless. Well, well what's the use of having a contract? Your Honor, the, the contract isn't worthless because the, the, the method does achieve a result to that issue. It doesn't leave the subject open. The same result that would exist without a contract. When, when, when you feel like striking for more money, you strike for more money. Well, yes, but, 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 I mean, does a union strike for that purpose when the contract clearly delineates what the wage rate is? If, if the policy of the legislation, of the Taft-Hartley legislation, is to be effectuated, 
I submit, and, and, and the courts have recognized 203D as the policy. The American manufacturing, the language in American manufacturing, I think, is particularly helpful. The court states, in conjunction with, with, with 203D, that that policy of final adjustment by means chosen by the parties can be effectuated only if the means chosen by the parties for settlement of their differences under a collective bargaining agreement is given full play. What if, what if the company refuses to go through the grievance steps that are outlined? Could the, could the union bring an action in court to force it to? Yes, because those, as this, this court has developed the, the law of Section 301, and what the court has said that in the VACA case, that if the, if the employer repudiates the agreement, in other words, doesn't play by the rules it agreed to play by, if the union doesn't render unfair, uh, renders unfair representation, in, in fact, doesn't live up to its duty to represent its employees, a 301 claim will, will, will lie despite finality. So, so that in the third case where, the, where this Court has said that a 301 uh, lawsuit will lie is where the parties have indicated, expressly indicated, a willingness that, 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 that the parties could go to court to settle a dispute. Of course, there's nothing in this contract that expressly says you will have the right to go to court to enforce the grievance procedure. So it, it must just be by implication that when you enter into that sort of agreement and it's breached, you have a right to go to court. You know, if this court has developed 301. This court has said that this is what 301 means. You can go to court when there's repudiation. The employer doesn't live up to the, to the rules he agreed to live up, uh, live up to. When, when the union doesn't fairly represent the employees or when the parties expressly indicate a willingness to go to court. Why can't you say here that when the employer discharges for cause and it isn't a correct interpretation of cause, he's not playing by the rules that he agreed to live up to? Because, Your Honor, between — because the, the contract has established a dispute resolution process. And inherent, when the, when, when the employer said — gave up his, 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 his right to discharge at will and said, I will only discharge for cause — Part of that commitment by him was that the dispute would be — if a dispute arose as to what constituted just cause, it would be resolved through the mechanism that's provided for in the collective bargaining agreement. And that's — I think that's really the, the main point I want to make here is that this legislation, the Taft-Hartley legislation, if there was one — if there was a policy that, 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 that was enunciated in it, and clearly there was in the statutory language, and what this Court has said about it in the legislative history, it was final adjustment by the method chosen by the parties. And, and I submit that the parties have chosen a method. But isn't it true that they are generally speaking there in terms of final adjustment by the method set forth in the contract rather than a strike? Isn't the basic policy that to try to avoid uh, industrial warfare by, by peaceful means when they're available? No, Your Honor. What, what Lincoln Mills said, and I think it's, and, and, and I shouldn't say think, it's been repeated subsequently by this Court, what Lincoln Mills says is that industrial peace is achieved when the parties live up to the agreement that they bargained. And, and, and that's where industrial peace comes and from. And to decide whether they've lived up to the substantive terms of the agreement, it's, it's more peaceful to go out on strike than it is to have a judge decide whether the contract was broken. Your Honor, to me, somewhat inconsistent with my recollection of the debates back in 1947. Your Honor, Your Honor strike, certainly, I would, I would concur that, that, it, it, uh, that a perception of, of being resolved by an arbitrator is more, is more uh, peaceful than, 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 than a strike. However, there, the preemptive policy of, of Title VII, and I think it's clearly expressed in 201 and 203D. The preemptive policy of Taft-Hartley is that the method, final adjustment by the method chosen by the parties is the desirable method to resolve differences. But the real point here is the parties did not choose a method of final, final adjustment. They, 
opted for mediation and strikes, which are not methods of final adjustment. They're methods of arguing and negotiating and fighting it out by, without having a, a, a finality to any of it. You know, I, I would first say that, that strikes are, are recognized by this Court as legitimate means to resolve differences. Yes, but, but they're not little legitimate means of getting final adjustment of a dispute. I mean, maybe, I mean, of what the right answer is in the dispute. You know, in, in, uh, in a footnote of the trilogy, the Court recognized the existence of contracts where, where, unre- where grievances that, that aren't resolved out through the conciliatory steps sure. can, can result in strike. And if that's the method that the parties chose, and that's the policy that industrial peace is best achieved by... By, uh, uh, by going on strike. Yes. If, if, that's, if, if that's what they feel, if that's what the parties feel... Is, works best for them. And I think that, that what, the courts have, what the court has done over the years is it's given deference to the collective bargaining agreement that the parties agree to. It recognizes that they're best situated to... to, 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 to Let me ask you just another question. Couldn't you solve this problem very simply by saying, adding a sentence, saying, instead of just saying there should be no, uh, no strikes, in nor shall there be any litigation. We waive our right to sue. That's correct, Your Honor. You, if, you could do that in the future if you're unhappy. With, say we decide against you. I'm not saying I don't know what the court will do. But if the court should decide against you, you can protect yourself in the future by negotiating it. Yes, Your Honor. And on, and, and on the other side of the coin is the, the, other, the other party to the, to the agreement could have said, we reserve the right to go to court. Sure. Both you could have done it expressly either way. Yeah. Right. So, so we come down to what is the presumption when silence exists. Right. And I submit that if, if, the, if the rule of, of this court in Lincoln Mills, that we're going to develop the, the law of 301 consistent with the policy of the statute, and the, policy, and the preemptive policy of the statute is that final adjustment by a means chosen by the parties, that, that to the sub, as this Court decides this case, to de, if the substantive rule to be consistent with the policy of Taft-Hartley is that the presumption of finality should attach. I should indicate this Court has never gone so far as to allow, a, a, for example, a grievance to run the gamut of the grievance procedure contained in the collective bargaining agreement and if dissatisfied, dissatisfied with the result, then go to court for a second bite of the apple. This court has always confined 301 to compelling the parties to living up to the dispute resolution process they agreed to. Well, you don't really think that, uh, that the, uh, a strike or a lockout is going to settle what the contract means, do you? You just say it'll be a trial of strength. Look, Your Honor, it's... Well, it, 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 right or wrong? I, I don't agree, Your Honor. I think that you think a strike or a lockout, uh, whoever wins uh, is going that 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 mean that that is going to decide what the contract meant. I think, Your Honor, that it is does it or not. What it means, Your Honor, is that is that the parties have when they, that that a strike that that these parties, as they sit in the workplace and decide upon the common law that of what works best for them, that they have decided that this method. Best resolves their this method for settling for doing what interpreting the contract or yes. just trying who's uh, finding out who's the strongest. This me- this method for interpreting the contract, and, and 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 the way the strike and the lockout plays into that is that that perhaps perhaps these parties over their bargaining history realize that if they put that kind of element as their last step in the procedure, that neither party will ever get to it, and will put pressure on on the parties to resolve it at a lesser step. The court the court has never taken the position that that. Strike, at, to, a strike or lockout to resolve a grievance is impermissible. Mr. Page, uh, the Court of Appeals wasn't very enthusiastic about the result it reached, was it? 
No, it wasn't, Your Honor. I mean, there, there was, there was a... Uh, it goes back to the Fortune case as precedent, yes, which was written by Judge George Edwards. I believe. Who I would have assumed would be uh, sensitive to union employer problems. Given his history in Detroit, that would be correct, Your Honor. But uh, uh, clearly, the Sixth Circuit said that uh, were we writing on a clean slate, we would have decided otherwise. Yeah, we might have decided otherwise, I believe. Any explanation for that? Well, Your Honor, it's... it's <laughs> No, except, I mean, they, they, they certainly were indicating that perhaps a preference, a preference uh, to write the other way. But I would say this, that, that if this court is going to continue to, to, to uh, give substantive law to 301, consistent with the policy of the legislation, and the policy of the legislation is that the parties resolve the grievance themselves, that this court should, done, should do what it has always done, and that is say that we're going to stand on the sidelines let you play the game according to the rules that you decided to play them by, provided, of course, they, they don't violate public law. And if either of you then deviate from the rules you agreed upon, we're going, to, we're going to compel you to live up to the rules as you agreed. We are not going to develop a new set of rules for you to play the game. And I think that, I think that uh, the court has never done what petitions request here. The court has never said, run the gamut of your grievance procedure, and if you don't like the result, then we're going to give you another bite of the apple in a 301 lawsuit. I think that the, the, what 301 has been will enforce the game as you have created it. We will not give you a, a second chance in, before a federal district court jury to achieve what you couldn't achieve pursuant to your dispute resolution process that you agreed upon. The, the court has consistently held that there is no right to arbitration. With respect to the, uh, while the court has favored arbitration, it has explicitly said that we are not that we are not going to uh, coerce or compel an employer to put arbitration in a collective bargaining agreement. What they, the method they choose is the method that we're going to respect. What if the, if the con what if the contract didn't? Uh Provide for grievances, uh, and there was no no strike clause. And, and I suppose uh, you would say that uh, the union could sue uh, under 301. Yes, sir. That's, I believe that's Smith versus Evening. Even though they could also strike. Yes, they could also strike. So you can't say that just because they can strike, there's no contract. No, Your Honor. But but I can say that they have agreed upon the method by which they're going to resolve it. All right. And that's the policy that they should live up to. Suppose all they mean, Mr. Page, by the, by the, um, by the provision that after conclusion of the grievance procedure, uh, they may strike or resort to lo lockout. Perhaps, perhaps all they mean is uh, it, will not be, um, uh, it, it will not be an unfair labor practice uh, for them to do it, even if they're striking for uh, uh, an, an issue that is really uh, covered by the contract. I mean, normally, if, if, if you strike, you know, the contract says uh, uh, $15 and you say it, it means 18 if you strike, that would be an unfair labor practice if it's already covered. Maybe this provision just means you're free to strike and, and, and you won't be liable. However, the other side can go to court to see if it can be legally resolved. Now, isn't that a conceivable interpretation of it? Your Honor, I think the parties are committed to the process they agreed on, and that's the one they have to live by. Uh, I don't think they can, either of them can go to court unless, unless they fail to live live up to the rules that they agreed on. But, but I can give that provision meaning without leading to these, uh, what seem to me, extraordinary results that you end up agreeing on nothing at all. 
Well, you're just agreeing to you, pro you promised to negotiate. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I, I think that's that. Uh, yeah. If they don't, well, the alternative to promising to negotiate is to call for arbitration. And again, the courts, while, while favoring arbitrations, I think the carbon fuel case said it best is, well, uh, our, uh, favorite, while arbitration might color the interpretation of a contract, it will never uh, result in the court imposing it on the parties. They could have agreed to something less here. Instead of a four-step mediation proceeding, I suppose they could have agreed that before discipline is imposed on the employee, you'll give notice to the shop steward and he'll have uh, 48 hours in which to talk to the uh, foreman of the particular uh, plant. And once that's done, you can go ahead and strike. That would be the method agreed upon on your review, wouldn't it? It doesn't have to be four-step agreements. No, yeah, it could be. It could be a very simple notice provision. It could, be a, it could be a shorter step. But what Lincoln Mills said is, we best effectuate the policy by, by uh, uh, adhering to the means chosen by the parties. By the ultimate issue here is whether the parties agreed that the court would be available or it wouldn't be available. The issue really is what did you agree upon? You get this conflicting battle of presumptions. Yeah. We, did, we did not agree in terms of whether to go to court or not, clearly not. So, what, what, so then we didn't expressly agree, but maybe implicitly. You know, it's a question of which yeah. way you, you run the presumption. Well, yeah, the one the one the one contract indicates that that, that that unresolved grievances will be processed through the through through Article 16. But but our point, our, the, the rule we ask for is that the presumption is finality because that is consistent with the policy of the legislation. And this court has never gone beyond saying that you can go to court in three instances. Repudiation by the employer, unfair, represent, uh, unfair representation by the union, or if the parties indicate a willingness, uh, express a willingness to go to court. The, the, this court, as it's developed the substantive law of 301, has always said we are going to use it to make you agree to the process that, that was arrived at through the collective bargaining process, your industrial self-government. It's given deference to that contract. And because the legislation clearly expresses its policy of final adjustment by a means chosen by the parties. That, that, that this Court has never taken 301 beyond enforcing the method chosen by the parties. And I ask the Court not to do it in this case. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Page. Mr. Gold, do you have rebuttal? Just two very brief points, if I could. First of all, I want to emphasize, uh, uh, as Justice Stevens just indicated, that this is a question of interpretation. The whole argument on the other side is, uh, and I quote, the parties are committed to the process they agreed on. The problem is that it isn't plain what the parties agreed on, and uh, against that background, we're suggesting what we believe is the better interpretive rule. Secondly, the policies of the Labor Management Relations Act are far more complex than simply that the parties can do whatever uh, they want. Uh, that was an argument. Uh, that the unions made in 1947. It might have been a better world if we prevailed, uh, but we did not, and Congress provided that one of the policies was stability during the term of uh, collective bargaining uh, agreements. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Gold. The case is submitted.